When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am Royfield Brown, who is in the Venice of the North, Birmingham. <laughs> Today we are joined by that most eloquent Brexit naysayer, Femi Oluwale, and by the liberal US sage, that is Doug Levy, in San Francisco. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, everybody. In a week that has seen the man-boy that is the President of the United States call a woman a horse face, we ask, where is the moral leadership at the heart of the U.S. administration? In an interview with the Associated Press, President Trump is criticizing the condemnation of Saudi Arabia over the case of missing journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The president called it another case of guilty until proven innocent. His comments come as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says the kingdom has made a, quote, serious commitment to hold senior leaders and officials accountable. CBS News Chief White House correspondent Major Garrett reports. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called his conversation with Saudi leader Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman about the apparent murder of U.S. resident and Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi direct and candid. But the pleasantries with the Crown Prince made it appear the Trump administration's strong backing of the Saudi regime remained intact. Uh, Doug, Trump says we need to find out what happened first. Isn't that right? Saudi Arabia should, shouldn't be proven guilty before it's proven innocent on this matter. We aren't asking the hard enough questions. That's the problem. We know that an American resident who is a writer for an American newspaper walked into the Saudi consulate two weeks ago and has not been seen since. There's a lot of other information that certainly points to something very bad happening to him in there. So no, we don't presume guilt, but we don't presume innocence in the face of overwhelming circumstantial evidence that something improper happened. Femi, Femi, something happened here, right? But if Saudi Arabia can kill a US resident in a Turkish consulate, should we be reconsidering the definition of what we call a rogue state? I think we need to start from a position of what exactly is Saudi Arabia. They have done things that would just calling them allies, given everything that they've done, their treatment of women, what they've done in terms of their bombing campaign in Yemen, where they've been bombing hospitals and schools, killed 5,000 civilians. They bombed a Doctors Without Borders hospital on three separate occasions. And during between those bombings, Doctors Without Borders called up the Saudis and said, hi, guys, here's our coordinates. This is where we are. Please don't bomb us. Saudi's response was, yeah, we know where you are, but that doesn't mean you're safe. And then bombed them another two times. So this is the sort of people we're dealing with here. The Saudi regime calling them allies and expecting and trying to give them the benefit of the doubt is simply morally irresponsible on behalf of the U.S. administration. 
Well, and and that's really the point. It's like, you know, we don't know exactly what happened, but we know that the regime in Saudi Arabia has done some bad stuff and is not a proponent of freedom of the press. Neither is our current U.S. president. And those two things are intersecting right here. And uh, the U.S. Attorney General uh, has it right when he says that when a journalist from the United States or really from anywhere is attacked, that should be taken with the utmost seriousness. And that's what's missing here. Doug, isn't one of the reasons why we haven't had um, a strong condemnation from your head of state, the fact that in the Middle East, there are no innocent players, are there? You know, we can't ditch this long-standing ally. At least America can't ditch this long-standing ally. It's not just a case of arms sales you've got going to Saudi Arabia. It's geopolitics. Well, there's certainly geopolitics involved in everything, and there has to be. But the United States has historically balanced the geopolitical considerations with a steadfast commitment to human rights. And that's really what's at stake here. Um, the current U.S. administration has created an environment in which dictators, despots, and other evil people know that if they do something bad, if they do something that goes against what the United States stands for, they're not going to get punished for it. And that's why this has happened. The idea that a murder may have actually occurred within a diplomatic compound is an offense to the whole concept of international relations and diplomacy. And there should be outrage uh, by everybody. Um, the other thing, we can't help but think that the kowtowing to the Saudi royal family may have something to do with the fact that the Trump family has earned hundreds of millions of dollars uh, from them. In fact, uh, I was reading earlier that uh, one of the Trump hotels uh, was losing money until last year when the Saudi royal family spent something like $300,000 just in one hotel. There's cash going into the president's pocket. That's a problem. Well, I mean, with with all the arms sales to Saudi Arabia, it, the idea that we would give them the benefit of the doubt over and above any other state, it's, it's not a coincidence. I know that the UK sold, I think, $6.8 billion in, in weapons to them over about a year period. And, and I think America is even a lot more than that. And, and the idea how much, but basically we're, we're, give, we're, letting them, we're giving them carte blanche simply because they're lining the pockets of American industries. Exactly. And that's the offense. That's what needs to stop. Uh, Doug, we've had pictures of the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, pictures smiling with Mohammed bin Salman. It's sending all the wrong messages, isn't it? We're not going to be able to pressurize this regime at all, and they know it. It's not sending the right messages the way you and I and I would like to think most normal, rational, good people would think. But I think the Secretary of State has delivered precisely the message that the president and the U.S. administration want to deliver, which is, we've got your back. It's interesting, though, you like, because that sounds like a pejorative, like you're saying it's, it's a bad thing. But in, in the world of, let's say, um, Saudi politics, they're saying these people really are our allies, haven't they? They've completely got our backs and whatever. And this is what allies are supposed to do. And this is, and this is one of the reasons why uh, the Saudi regime were upset with Obama, wasn't it? They saw him as actually not supportive of their regime. So you could argue, if you take a, a long-term view or um, a view which is, isn't wrapped up in things like, you know, pesky things like human rights, the war in Yemen, etc. but in a world of a multipolar world in the Middle East, of which the, the Iranians are, God, I'm, I'm so American, Iranians, I'm going to say that, say that again, but in which the Iranians are the real bad guys, it's the right thing for the US and Pompeo to be doing right now, backing their old firm allies. I think it just shows a complete lack of, of moral integrity if you're willing to, to back people that are doing the things that the Saudis are doing. I mean, quite simply, you could, you could, you could, you could argue that they were just picking a side if that, wasn't, that didn't just happen to be the side we would get a whole lot of money from. It's, it's, 
it's just utterly irresponsible. It's, and it sends the exact wrong message, as you said. Purely, Femi, you're being cynical. That's just purely coincidental. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's, just, it's just a massive coincidence that a massive industry in America benefits from a regime that they're being silent on the, arm, the uh, human rights abuses of when they really should be taking the lead and stamping this sort of thing out. And the U.S. has a history of doing exactly that. We've had relationships with countries that have done bad things, and we don't instantly end diplomatic relations because of a terrible thing that a country has done, but you still take a stand. And here, it's not taking a stand. We're actually, in effect, sanctioning the horrible actions. But but not everybody within the U.S. government is, because we've had had U.S. senators and uh, Mitch McConnell even has come out and actually said, you know, that Trump should investigate the the disappearance of uh, Khashoggi. So, Doug, are we see is this move significant? Are we actually seeing um, whether it's Congress and the Senate? with their purview of an oversight of American foreign policy, move away from from the position of President Trump? Time will tell. So far, we've seen lots of nice words from members of the president's party, but we've seen no follow-up in the past. And you know, even when the House and Senate passed the Russia sanctions bill after the interference in the 2016 election, uh, the president only imposed those sanctions under duress and long past the deadline that uh, the lawmakers imposed. And the lawmakers didn't do a thing about it. So I have very little faith in the senators who are speaking out so strongly. And I'm sad about this because the United States used to stand for something. And right now we stand for transactional decision-making and whatever is going to fatten the president's wallet, which is really offensive. Femi, just to uh, end up with you on this, isn't that really the point, is that there is absolutely no moral leadership coming from uh, America on this matter? We've had no moral leadership since Trump came to power, um, no moral leadership internally in American politics or even globally, that actually uh, there is no def- there is no definition of doing right and wrong anymore. It's a case of money talks and, and, and that's it. And as uh, Doug says, everything is transactional. I mean, if you look at things like um, all the times that, that we, the West, have gone into the Middle East to say that, oh, they're doing such wrong things for their people, uh, but we, we in the West, we have that we have the moral authority. And yet in the occasions where we have an economic gain from that country, we stay very, very silent. So it's very hard for any third party to look at America and say that, oh, when they act, it's because there's something that's really gone wrong there. Not these people just simply act in their own interest based on uh, basically oil and, and arms weapon, and weapons. And now it's time to go from one confusing mess to the intractable proposition that is Brexit. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You brought the concrete new proposals to this summit that the Europeans say they need. First of all, what we're going to be discussing over the next few days, I and my European counterparts, are some of the issues that face us now and into the future, issues such as migration, how we counter new and emerging threats to our security. Of course, this does, this council also coincides with the Asia-Europe meeting, and I'm looking forward to discussing the opportunities uh, that uh, that presents and those uh, global opportunities with the leaders who will be being welcomed here to Europe. On the issue of our leaving the European Union, I will be discussing talking to leaders tonight about the very good progress that has been made since Salzburg, both on the withdrawal agreement and our future partnership. Uh, The teams have been working very hard in order to ensure that we can address these issues. Uh, What we've seen is that we've solved most of the issues in withdrawal agreement. There there is still the question of the Northern Irish backstop, but I believe everybody around the table wants to get a deal. Uh, uh, By working intensively and closely, we can achieve that deal. I believe a deal is achieved well, now is the time to make it happen. Intensive work is needed to overcome differences on the Irish border and to reach a Brexit deal. So says Theresa May. Uh, Femi, you're a man who's steeped in all things Brexit. If you don't believe me, people, just Google, <laughs> which is Femi's answer for a lot of things. Just Google me. So, Femi, just what are Theresa May's avenues for manoeuvre tonight as she dines with the EU heads? Well, um, first of all, the, the, uh, being called a man steeped in all things Brexit, it makes me feel a little dirty. Um, secondly, what Theresa May's options are, uh, well, she has three options with Brexit. Basically, the reason why the Good Friday Agreement exists is because people can't really decide whether or not Northern Ireland should be part of the UK or part of the United Island of Ireland, and that's basically where the conflict comes and the Good Friday Agreement creates a balance whereby officially Northern Ireland stays part of the UK, but it has an open border with the rest of the island of Ireland. Now, what does Brexit do? It takes Northern Ireland, along with the rest of the UK, and puts in a completely different legal jurisdiction to the rest of the island of Ireland, which is an EU country. You've already upset that balance a bit. And then when, once we start importing beef and, and having different laws, then that means that Certain products will be legal on one side of the Irish border and won't be and won't be legal on the other. And if that happens, just due to consumer protection, you have to start checking lorries, which creates a border, which goes against the Good Friday Agreement, which means that with Brexit, you have three options. You can either have different laws um, to the island, to the to the Republic of Ireland, which would basically mean you have checks and break the Good Friday Agreement. So first option, break the Good Friday Agreement. Second option. The whole of the UK stays within the rules of the EU, but nobody wants, no, well, nobody will be okay with that because that means the only real effect of Brexit is that we now give up our position in setting the rules of the EU, i.e. less control, when the slogan for Brexit was take back control. And the third option is that just Northern Ireland alone stays within the rules of the EU, but then you've broken up the United Kingdom, theoretically destroyed the country. And also, as a, an added bonus, uh, the Republic of Ireland would have a say over the laws of Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland wouldn't have any members of the European Parliament, whereas the Republic of Ireland would. And I cannot imagine anything that could possibly inflame tensions more than that. The idea that the Republic of Ireland would have a say over the laws of Northern Ireland, but Northern Ireland not having that say. So she has three incredibly bad options. So... Out of those three options, you're saying that she doesn't really have any room for manoeuvre. But she, isn't she the also not only the prime minister, but the head of the Conservative and Unionist Party? So with, with that in her job title, she's not going to put a border down the Irish Sea, is she? Well, yeah. And uh, in fact, the DUP, the uh, party in Northern Ireland, which uh, manages to get her sort of majority because she's teamed up with them, they've made a red line that says we can't have anything that creates a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. So that pretty much rules out that third option, which means that the only two options she's left with are um, breaking the Good Friday Agreement or leaving us with less control after people in 2016 voted for more control. 
And neither of those are okay, because if you break the Good Friday Agreement, you risk sending us back to the Troubles and uh, in, in a period of time where 3,600 people died and there was uh, terrorism across the entire the British, prior to the British, British Isles. That's completely unacceptable and no prime minister should ever allow that to happen. Or you go directly against the wishes of Brexit voters and we end up with a situation where neither Brexit voters nor Remain voters are happy and the country will tear itself apart. So the only way forward, really, is to basically say, we tried this, we screwed up. Uh, if you guys really want to go ahead with this, we can, but you should probably vote on whatever we've managed to sort out. Well, I was going to say, this is the reality of Brexit coming home to roost, basically. Uh, mixed that metaphor badly, but hmm. the Brexit was a very simple solution to a very complicated problem, as so many political things are. And one of the reasons we haven't got a Brexit agreement is that the details are really complicated. I mean, just think about the taxation uh, process. If if there's no border and Britain has to collect EU taxes and send them off to Brussels, that's a bureaucracy that doesn't exist right now, isn't it? Well, that, that's why um, the, the EU has already rejected the proposal that would mean that the EU would have to collect taxes on behalf of the UK because the idea of being forced to do more bureaucracy because of our decision to leave them is completely unacceptable to them. And that's why we are looking at pretty much no deal at the end of this because nobody wants this. All right. So, Femi, I know you're a man that spent time in Brussels You've got the ear of many uh, European uh, bureaucrat. So the government has been somewhat bullish recently. Well, saying about the last five days or so, saying that considerable progress has been made. What progress do you think they're referring to? I think that it basically means that, I mean, the, the proposal that she came up with a couple of, well, a few months ago, but she presented it a couple of weeks ago, that proposal sort of leaves us within the rules of the EU, uh, but not close enough um, for the Good Friday Agreement and also uh, for the customs arrangement. So it's likely that when she says progress has been made, she's pretty much meaning that she's managed to work out a less Brexity Brexit, a deal that leaves us more cl even closer to the EU to avoid that sort of border issue. And to protect jobs, but again, it's just hey, don't don't be talking about jobs. Jacob Rees, Mark, Boris Johnson, et al. They're not concerned <laughs> about jobs. Why why throw jobs into it? Is that just a dirty four letter word? Speaking of dirty four letter words, Boris Johnson had the, had a choice one to say about UK businesses when they had concerns about how Brexit would affect uh, jobs in this country. Quite simply, they don't care. They are rich enough and well to do enough and successful enough that. They can just basically ride that train of patriot of um, nationalism to the number ten spot. They do not care what happens to the people of this country. But, but Jacob Rees-Mogg said that he it could take up to fifty years before we see the benefits of Brexit. Really, fifty years? I'll be almost dead. Um, most people who voted for Brexit would have died um, pretty much. But look what, but family, look what we will be bequeathing to our grandkids. The benefit of a black passport. Yes, that's that's true. Um, a black passport. Uh, I actually came up with a, 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 a. Well, I sort of stole a phrase from uh, the other side of the pond. I said, "I have a dream that one day my passport will be judged not by the color of its outer skin, but by the ports it lets me pass." The passport that we would be getting in the event of Brexit, will literally be of less value. Right now, our passport gets us the right to live, work, and love in 31 countries across Europe. And the passport that we'd be getting, the blue the blue or black one that they're talking about, would literally just be reduced to the size of um, the UK. Oh, no, no. And An island. That is, that is travel on the Grand Canyon. We, we, get, we get the Republic of Ireland, the common, common travel area as well. We get that too. Oh, yes, of course, of course. I, 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 I forget that. We get another. We get one country, um, but we lose 30. Well, 29. 26. Well, uh, there are uh, three other countries that are in the... Oh, you're um, right. In you're the, right. Uh, Norway, Iceland, and uh, Switzerland. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, smart ass. Okay, right. <laughs> Doug, 
Um, I know you're one of the most, one of these kind of atypical Americans because you actually keep abreast of uh, UK politics. Is tonight, and you're holding ourselves hostage to fortune by actually talking about this when um, Theresa May, as we speak, is actually dining with the EU heads. Is this going to be Theresa May's last chance to reach a deal? Or as uh, Labour said today, um, it's just, she's too weak. The Tory government is too weak and too divided to ever reach a deal. I think that would probably apply to whoever is Prime Minister of the UK right now. Uh, I mean, Theresa May, of course, was put into a seemingly impossible position by the Brexit vote in the first place. The fact that she's managed to stay in office through all of this is, I would say, a testament to her leadership. But I don't know what the solution is going to be. I don't know if a solution is possible. It would be impressive uh, all around if something does come out of this. But I also don't think that the deadline is really the deadline because as we've been talking about, the consequences of Brexit, at least as as determined this far, are effectively unworkable. So even if the deadline passes with no deal, there's going to have to be something done to fix this sooner or later. But the question is, what are they going to do? Because if, if we have basically a matter of weeks to, to finalize this thing. I mean, the, the whole point was that we finished negotiations by um, the end of October. So we've got roughly six months to get it ratified by the European Parliament and by the member states of the EU. And after that, once they realize that there's no workable deal, when even if they come to a deal, it's not likely to make it through Parliament because it has to be approved by the UK Parliament as well. Uh, and I don't see MPs in the UK Parliament voting for a deal that they know goes against the wishes of Brexit voters or one that destroys the Good Friday Agreement. So we're likely to be left with a no-deal situation come December. And if that's the case, personally, I do not see the Tories being willing to accept the blame for, a, for what no deal would do to the country. They would be, I mean, they're already pretty much lost for a generation if, if, if Brexit goes ahead, period. But if, if, if there's a no-deal situation, they just simply don't get in, off, in office again. There's certainly an incentive for a deal to be reached, but I would put this um, somewhat in line with what happens when the politicians in Washington get into their high horses or hissy fits or whatever you want to say, and we have a, a shutdown of the U.S. government. It's happened a handful of times that I can think of, sometimes for more than a few days, and people eventually figure out, oh, that was a really bad idea. And nobody pays attention to the fact that when that happens, you actually wind up spending a whole lot more than the money you said that the whole fight was going to save, because you've got to pay for all the things that didn't happen on top of restarting stuff. You know what, Doug, That 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 is true. That is true. But... Um, Ted Cruz was the, the last person to close down the US government. Yeah. Uh, and Ted Cruz is one senator out of 100. Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, represents some 40 MPs uh, on, on the Tory side. So this would be Ted Cruz and about another five others. So and, and also you can't buy off um, a senator here or a senator there with a bit of pork barrel spending. Um, that that would be the equivalent um, in this, that actually at the heart of this is such deep felt ideas around identity. And we dress everything up as, as kind of something else. And it's going to look quite key to me. I was kind of looking at your Twitter feed today, Femi, that you had a conversation with, with somebody uh, today um, about yeah, do you feel European? Do you feel British? Um, mm -hmm. In what way has Brexit defined your sense of Englishness? Because one thing that Brexit definitely has done is to bring English identity to the fore in UK politics. So in what way has Brexit maybe changed your view of how you see yourself, whether you're English, British, or maybe has it not at all? Well, if Brexit happens, um, 
it literally strips me of what my, of what my identity is. Right now, um, I am both a British and an EU citizen. That is the law. It's part of the treaties that EU citizenship is a separate citizenship on top of national citizenship, and that will be stripped from us the moment we leave from the EU. For the EU, if we leave the EU, and one of the reasons why young people, especially, um, are so against this is because if you were born after 1974, because of the timings of when the treaties were signed, the only identity you've ever had as an adult is being both a British and an EU citizen. And that happens to be the very demographic that voted to remain, the under 44s. So this very much goes to the core of, of, of who we are. And, and the irony of Brexit is that it was done as this thing that was supposed to restore great British pride but the generations that will be living with it will be a hell of a lot less proud of their country because of Brexit. Many people feeling that, that this has stripped them of, I mean, for me, being European adds to what it means to be British. That sense of European community, which is part of the fact that we get to live across Europe, being an EU citizenship, an EU citizen makes the whole of Europe roughly our home. And the idea that we'd be closing off, well, I often say that Brexit is like knocking down 96% of your house and claiming victory. And it is having a real impact on the quality of life, even before it's taken effect. I mean, wages in Britain are down in the last two years. They're going up most other places. The economic effects of Brexit, they're, they're bad now. They only, get, they only get worse. Quite simply, being in the EU means that because we make laws together and we have the same rules over laws, over products and stuff, it means that anything made in this country is automatically legal across the 28 countries of, of the single market. And that means that you don't have any costly checks or, or regulatory barriers or tariffs. And that makes, that makes the UK an attractive place to create factories, create jobs. But if we leave that system, I mean, there's a factory in Sunderland that like 75% of the cars that they make go to mainland Europe and they employ 27,000 people across the Northeast. It just doesn't make sense for that factory to stay there longer than 10 years after Brexit. So it's going to significantly lower quality of life here when jobs start to leave, when prices start to rise. And this is not what people voted for at all. And that's why we're, we're arguing that there has to be some sort of democratic process whereby we can avoid that kind of damage, especially but given... Ha, ha, but that, how can we talk about a democratic process, Femi, when there was a democratic vote and we voted to leave. We voted to leave, but I mean, our group, our future, our choice, the youth movement for what we're calling a people's vote has basically been touring the country asking Brexit voters themselves what they wanted from Brexit when they voted. And they wanted three things. They wanted more control over their laws. They wanted a better national health service. And they wanted to be better off just generally, economically. What about immigration, less immigration? Well, that, that comes under control, as in the ability to control immigration. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why I kind of got semi-internet famous is because I pointed out that what we were told about EU immigration was a complete lie. Um, we were told that the EU forces us to let unlimited numbers of migrants come here, live off benefits and clog up our national health service. Whereas, in fact, under EU law, there is a specific rule against coming here, coming to another country and being a burden. In fact, in order to come to this country, you need to have either a job or have enough money that you're not a burden and your own medical insurance. So it was a complete lie. And like I said, they wanted three things, more control, better NHS, better off. And as for more control or being left with is a, is an agreement that basically leaves the UK copying the rules of the EU, but having no say over them, which means less control. The national health service. Well, our British, our British medical association, the Royal college of nurses, the Royal college of midwives, are all saying that Brexit is bad for our National Health Service. And as for being better off, as I mentioned, if you create barriers between us and our closest trade partners, you're just going to make things more expensive and you're going to lose jobs. I mean, even Donald Trump, Donald Trump, when he started his little trade war, he left Canada and Mexico out of it at the start. Why? Because not even Trump was crazy enough to disrupt trade with his closest partners, to, to cut off his, his competitive edge in his local environment. And that's exactly what we're doing now. It is bad, whichever way you look at it. All right. I'm going to come back to you because obviously I'm a Remainer too, but I, I can see some, some of the Brexit arguments against what you actually said there. But Doug, right? Because mm -hmm. I want to end up with Femi. 
Uh, I'm going to ask you a question and then come back, uh, come back to Femi. You've been watching UK politics uh, implode for the last two and a half years, and you're a student of world politics. How has your view of Britain maybe changed in the last two and a half years? Well, it certainly has gone down uh, because I see ugly... And do you think, Doug, sorry, just to jump in, and do you also think that your view is maybe echoed by other people around the world? There's no question that Britain's esteem has fallen. By how much, I don't know. But uh, the whole premise of Brexit is counter to the trend of the past several decades of bringing the world closer together reaching across borders, you know, working together with people from different places and different backgrounds to create a better world. Brexit is trying to pull the plug on at least a part of that. And those of us who think that friendships across borders are a good thing are certainly less inclined to look favorably on a country that rejects that kind of international friendship. Exactly. I mean, my best year of my entire life was my Erasmus year, where I was studying in a French university, where, by the way, tuition fees tuition fees are non-existent. So this is not something for the elite. This is something that everybody gets to do. And Quite simply, it was the best year of my life. I mean, especially it was a, a language-based course, which is why I got to go abroad. It means that it's like 90% female, which means that that was the most romantically complicated year of my life. <laughs> the idea that we'd be cutting off those opportunities for future generations, it just makes me sad. Well, it's also the very practical part. Um, I, I mean, I just got back from a, a trip to uh, a foreign country where I had to plan ahead because I, I knew that certain things that I – use may not be available there. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But with Brexit, somebody traveling, say, from France or Italy to holiday in Britain will have to think much harder because products that are sold in France won't automatically be available in Britain and vice versa. The pharmaceutical standards are going to be different well, I, I, it's going to be more visceral than that first off, is that come potentially next summer, if we just want to nip to Ibiza and go and party or go to Tuscany, drink some wine or just have a little weekend, there you go. There you go. And one of the most shocking things for me was uh, the this headline about a year ago or so in the Daily Mail saying, those EU bosses are going to charge us now for visas to, to go to Europe. And so what exactly were you proposing if you didn't think that was actually going to be an outcome? We're all Remainers here. But Femi, what you describe in terms of your idyllic, uh, one of the most idyllic years of your life, I'm on your side, brother. So, so, so don't kill me on this, right? But sometimes I have to play devil's advocate. Does sound somewhat elitist. If I am a 55-year-old resident of yeah. Sunderland who um, is maybe doing a job of which he's only half-skilled mm -hmm. to do. Or let's say he's over-skilled to do, sorry, mm -hmm. right? My children have grown up. And they have to leave Sunderland to get any halfway decent yeah. job. My view of the world is going to be coloured by that and not necessarily sending off my children to Erasmus universities in Europe and global kinship, friendship, uh, gap years, etc. My world is Sunderland. My world is Burnley. My world is Lowestoft. Um, these are small... Uh, UK cities which have a declining uh, influence on the national economy. And my view of the world is that you can, you can understand that person's worldview that once Britain used to be the manufacturer of the world and they can put this relative economic manufacturing decline, they can put it and align it with that vote in 1975 for us to ratify us joining the EU and say, yeah, 
there you go. We join with these people. We've always been different from them. Um, we need to go back. It's wrong-headed, but in terms of a visceral, emotional pull to to a past, you know, I can understand that. I can understand that, and I can understand somebody being thinking that uh, the world has somewhat passed them by, and people in Brussels at best are only thinking about Britain one twenty eighth of the time. Let's think about us all of the time. Well, yeah. I mean, when when you take about when you take Sunderland specifically, uh, I mean, I, I've I've been there. I mean, I was born in Darlington. I'm a, I'm technically a north a northeasterner, and they're the areas that have been screwed over by not the EU because the EU plows funding into those areas like you would not believe. They've been screwed over by Westminster. It is Margaret Thatcher that that led to the closure of the, of the factory. This is decisions by UK UK governments. I mean, Westminster, what I keep saying is if you want to stop Brexit so we can simply return to the status quo, you do not deserve to stop Brexit. It's the areas like Sunderland, like the, the Southwest, like, like Wales, like Northern Ireland, that get no help from Westminster and they need things to get better. They need investment in those areas to improve jobs, to create the jobs and to also to, to improve transport infrastructure. So businesses actually want to set up there and therefore create those jobs. That's what needs to get better. And Quite simply, Brexit is sucking all the oxygen out of the room. They're employing 9,000 civil servants with plans for 7,000 more and 300 to do, deal with border issues. All about Brexit, not doctors, not nurses. They're not investing in the Northeast. They're just doing a Brexit that their own impact assessments say harms the country. This is not all people, what those people in the Northeast need. And as for the idea that it's quite elitist, elitist to go abroad, quite simply, the unemployment rate in, 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 in Germany, in the Netherlands, are lower than the UK. My first, one of my first jobs was, was working in a hotel in France where I was working alongside people who didn't even have degrees and, was, and had simply gone there straight after school. And it involved everything from customer service to cleaning toilets. This is not some elite, elitist thing, but it's, it's painted as such that it's elitist to, to go abroad simply to keep it out of the hands of people who, who wouldn't otherwise have those opportunities. Whereas, in fact... I got to put um, working in a hotel on my TV, speaking French on my CV. This was a way to actually move my my career forward. And these are the sorts of opportunities that will be stolen from younger generations. I mean, this was these were not elite people I was working alongside. I was working alongside people from Birmingham and across the country. So these are the, and like I said, Brexit makes the the UK a less attractive place to create jobs. So if you're living in Burnley, if you're living in Sunderland, and you want things to get better, you want job opportunities. Brexit is not what you need. Well, Brexit is a perfect example uh, of of what happens when you have people who are voting based on emotion and not facts. We've had exactly the same thing over here. Um, you know, think about how many times our president and other people have railed about foreign cars on U.S. roads. Well, BMWs are made in South Carolina. There's international benefit or there's benefits to laborers in the United States from our global trade. Uh, the Boeing factory is another one. And, and, you know, these are things that would not happen without trade agreements and international mm -hmm. collaborations and Brexit, just like the U S administration's tariffs shuts that down and will cost us jobs and more. All right. Again, I have to, cast myself in the role of being devil's advocate before we wind up this section. Okay. Now, the, a couple of things. All the saying is all politics, all politics is local. And, and for me, you cannot deny that the British high street has changed in the last 15 years. The typical British high street with Polish shops, um, Hungarian shops, Lithuanian shops, etc. Right. I think that's an enriching thing and also see it part of cyclical change. 50 years ago, it would have been the emergence of Indian corner shops. So I don't have a problem with it, but I think it's beholden on us to not excuse, but to understand that for some people that change is um, at least gives them concern. 
Whether they should be concerned about it is another issue, but it gives a notice, notifiable concern. So it goes back to something which you said before, Femi, that each EU government has the ability actually to turn away another EU citizen from another country if they don't have um, medical cover and enough money to look after themselves. Why didn't Remainers arguably, uh, sorry, loudly state that case during the campaign. Why aren't they still saying it now? And why have we allowed the Daily Mail and right-wing shill newspapers to, in effect, say the utter opposite for the last 15 years? Um, Well, for one, it's been the policy of every government for the past 40 years to say that if it's sunny, it's Westminster. If it's rainy, it's the EU. And that's why we allowed a situation where basically immigration has not been a net damage on this country. Um, uh, they provide 5%. The immigrants from citizens from EU countries make up 5% of our population, yet they make up 10% of our doctors. So our NHS desperately needs immigration. Um, but second, if we're talking about the notion of people coming here and being a burden on the country, um, it was David Cameron's job to enforce the EU's rules on immigration. I mean, his home secretary at the time was Theresa May. They're the ones who should have had a registration system, much like countries like uh, Belgium, Austria, which I, where I've lived, where within within about a month of arriving, I needed to present myself at the uh, local authorities, uh, write a copy of my employment contract, say how much I was earning, how long I was going to be there. These are steps that the UK government chose not to do. But David Cameron was never going to say to the Brexit people who were inclined to vote for Brexit, oh, I hear your concerns about immigration. The reason why you have those concerns is because I haven't been doing my job properly. That was never going to happen. And so it was much easier for them to say, well, yes, of of course, it's the EU that's uh, forcing uncontrolled immigration on us. Nothing to do with the fact that I've chosen specifically not to use the rules of the EU. And that's what got us in this mess in the first place. Mm. I, I would actually contend that really it's Tony Blair unlimited uh, Polish immigration when Poland acceded to the EU, because for me, it's significant that really the rise of UKIP as a significant political force comes about round about that time and afterwards. But but I hear you, brother. Listen, uh, we, we've kind of done this to death. Now it's time to go on to our takeaways of the last seven days. It's that time. It's our takeaways of the week where we talk about something which is non-political. And after a week of hard-bitten politics looking at the various shenanigans of Trump or the mess that is Brexit. We try and lift our spirits. So Doug Levy over in the sunny, sunny, sunny Bay Area over in California. Over to you. What has uh, enlivened you, made you feel happy to be alive in the last seven The sunny Bay Area where I had the heater on last night and it was 48 degrees oh, when wow. I woke up um, and it was foggy driving in. So it was wonderful, a wonderful sunny Bay Area, of course. Um, <laughs> but there certainly is a lot to be cheering and uh, it's important to recognize some of that. So I appreciate that you ask such a question. Um, one thing that makes me smile is thinking about the police department in Clearwater, Florida, We don't have a lot of good news from Florida these days, but um, uh, several police officers managed to recover a stolen truck, and they discovered that the truck was carrying a large shipment of fresh-baked donuts. You would think the officers would round up those donuts for themselves, but no, they actually uh, contributed them to a daily meal service for homeless people that the police department sponsors in Clearwater, Florida. So my hat tip is to the police officers in Clearwater, Florida for looking out for those less fortunate. That's a properly heartwarming story. Thank you for that, Douglas. Um, Femi over in Hipster Shoreditch. Um, what's been your takeaway the last seven days, sir? Uh, well, uh, I heard um, Tory MP Andrew Bridgen uh, on the radio recently. He's one of the members of the European Research Group, basically a hardcore, hard extremist Brexit group within the Tory party, which is pressuring Theresa May to do the most extreme version of Brexit. And he was on the radio saying about how, well, the, the typical ERG line of there's nothing to worry about regarding the Irish border. 
And he was saying that there's no way, there's no reason why Northern Ireland should be treated any different to the rest of the UK, um, because we'll still have the same rights. I, as an English person, will be able to walk across to uh, the Republic of Ireland and, and, and get myself an Irish passport, at which point the presenter said, hang on, what? Uh, he said, yeah, I, as an English person, will be able to go across to Northern to Republic of Ireland and get myself a British passport. Wait, you think that every English person has the automatic right to a British, to a, a, a European Union, i.e. Irish passport? Yes, that's, that's, that's part of a reciprocal agreement. Yeah, that was the, the craziest thing that I've heard, I think, this whole year. The idea that a member of a group within the Conservative Party, a group that has a significant influence on the direction of this country, will be heading in, in the next few months doesn't know the basics of international agreements that we currently have. Femi, now I'm going to uh, applaud you for that example, sir, but I need to admonish you in equal mm. measure. We're supposed to be non-political in this. Oh, section. crap, sorry. Um, That's another four-letter word. You've been mentioning a lot of them <laughs> on the show. You've done jobs and no crap. It should be so, look, I'm going to come back to you. Right, because I'm going to quickly yeah. jump in. Right, you got to, you've got about three minutes to think of something positive before we wrap the show up, which is non-political. Yeah. So I just went to Malta mm-hmm. for the weekend, and I am a total lover of all things history and geography. And Malta is a totally fascinating place in that it's one of the smallest countries in the world, population of just four hundred thousand, very small island. In effect, Malta is a city-state. But Malta has this crazy, beautiful, wonderful history. And I discovered something this weekend, which was that Malta is the only European country which has a Semitic language, i.e. an Arabic language as its native language. That is the fundamental base of Maltese. I thought that it's so close to Sicily that Maltese was some Italian derivative, but not. it's not. It's some Tunisian dialect of Arabic, which is fundamentally what Maltese is. And it is the most beautiful island. Valletta, the capital, is incredibly small. I think there's only about 6,000 people that live in in Valletta. Um, But it's this uh, wonderful, slightly tumble-down kind of 18th, 19th century architecture. Very narrow streets, cobbles, and these incredibly small bars and restaurants, which are literally almost like holes in the wall utterly beautiful the weather was lovely for the first couple of days i was there it rained on me somewhat uh, considerably on the third day but wow right and this isn't a point against brexit and the fact that you know we should just get to other countries and we're going to give all that up just malta it, it is 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 the point of my takeover of the week what a wonderful beautiful uh, little gem uh, that that island is and then it also reacquainted me with the uh, the periodical foreign affairs which I always see when I go into uh, WH Smith's in an airport and I kind of get it half the time I get it and don't actually read it I think I'm going to read that on the plane I don't but so many great articles I read a great one uh, being a, a, against identity politics by Francis Fukuyama who famously did that book so 20 years ago about the end of history. So many kind of like great articles from just great thinkers around the world. So uh, my takeaways of the week is Malta is ace and Foreign Affairs, the periodical, is also brilliant. Now, Mr. Femi, because I know you, you're new onto um, Mid-Atlantic Shores, uh, you're going to have a second bite. What's been your takeaway of the last seven uh, It needs to be positive. Okay. Yes. Tell us about the joys of Tinder or yeah, something. Well, I mean, Anything, I'm, I'm thinking about a pretty disastrous t- Tinder date that I had in Berlin a few days ago, but it's not a positive story. But it is funny, though. Well, if, if we can laugh and it will make us feel happy, then it's positive. OK, OK. So I went to Berlin a few days ago um, to actually speak in the German parliament. And whilst I was there for a couple of days, I figured I'd go on to Tinder and get swiping. Um, uh, a dating app and it uh, so I got a match um, and I spent a lovely evening with uh, a very lovely woman uh, but there was zero connection and um, unfortunately because she works in a hotel the date didn't start until about 11.20pm but the date didn't go very well Um, there was no spark 
on any possible level. But that realization didn't come to both of us until about 3 a.m. in the morning. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. It, it took you four hours to realize that there was no spark. Well, there was um, an hour and a half of, of eating food, uh, maybe half an hour in a bar. Um, and then things moved to the hotel room, but nothing happened. Yeah, so by at 3 a.m., uh, I was very much interested in the notion of sleeping, especially given that I had to be up to speak again in the German parliament, 8 a.m. Uh, but there was no public transport. I was Well, it was a single bed, so I was unable to sleep. And there was no public transport until 5 a.m. And the idea of not potentially not sleeping until 6 when I'm supposed to be speaking in the German parliament was unacceptable to me. So I uh, I had to run out of my hotel room shirtless uh, to find a an ATM about a two minute jog away, uh, get some money and come back. I then gave her the money and got her into a taxi, and then I realized whilst I was handing over the money that I should probably record the exchange because the CCTV of that event would have been somewhat suspect. Um, <laughs> uh, because I ran out of a hotel room, went to an ATM, came back with money, returned to my hotel room, then left my hotel room shortly afterwards with a woman in a long overcoat, and I put her into a taxi. Um, and that would be the sort of things that end political careers. Uh, so fortunately, I recorded that exchange. <laughs> so basically, your mere culprit is just you getting out ahead of the story. Yes, um, basically, uh, if you use recordings well and use Tinder's well, Tinder well, you can avoid problems. Well done. Well, Doug, may that be a lesson to you if you ever find yourself in a hotel room in Berlin at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and what's Tinder? <laughs> on that note folks we're gonna wrap the show up doug levy what have you been up to uh work-wise in the last in the last while since we since we spoke to you and how can people find you on social media i am working on a presentation about how to get emergency communications emergency messages about life safety to the public in this era of fake news when people don't trust messages from anybody, let alone government officials. And um, that's um, kind of a passion of mine to help people stay safe. And people can find out about that and more on Twitter. I am SF Doug. And Femi, which parliament you speaking at next and how can people find you on social media? Uh, well, I'll be speaking quite near parliament tomorrow uh, on BBC. Uh, but you can find me on so on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Femi underscore Sorry, F-E-M-I underscore Sorry. Uh, and you can follow OFOC Brexit on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Our Future, Our Choice, the youth movement for people's vote, if you think that Brexit isn't going well and not going to be good for your future. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Royfield. But as I say every week, not an awful lot of politics uh, because um, being a dyslexic I don't really like to write uh, but if you want to see pictures of maybe my holiday in Malta and my mum and dad who I love dearly who've been looking after me this week whilst I've had uh, the most rotten flu uh, feel free to go onto Twitter and follow me where I'm at Royfield and of course the show is at Mid Atlantic Show and eventually one day maybe hopefully I'll get round to actually sorting out what we do on Facebook but remember folks be nice be understanding uh, we are the left of center do the right thing we are the nice people side of politics because you know what it's the only way to be see you all again soon for another rip-roaring adventure in the world that is mid-atlantic toodaloo bye-bye there you go awesome thank you gentlemen malta from the tranquil peaceful villages to the crystal clear seas, to the bustling capital of Valletta. Malta has an in-depth history, along with beautiful sights to explore. Escape beyond your horizon and simply relax. 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.